a host of COVID headlines, Paul. Um, and as we talked about earlier in the show, the market seemingly brushing off concerns yep. about the Delta variant. Yeah, it really is. And I think, uh, you know, definitely some concerns there. But the expect I think the focus, at least on the near term, has been earnings yeah. uh, and has been the Federal Reserve. And all of those things are supporting, you know, it's kind of the narrative we've had for a while now. Well, let's get right to it with Tanya Winders, the president and chief executive officer of the Allergy and Asthma Network. It's a nonprofit organization with the mission to end the needless death and suffering due to asthma, allergies and related conditions through outreach, education, advocacy and research. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How has your mission changed in the last 16 months as you're not just battling allergies and asthma, but COVID as well? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, any individual who's living with a compromised immune system or respiratory system we know has greater complication from COVID. And so over the last 16, 18 months, uh, it has taken center stage for our community. And we have listened to that community and responded accordingly by developing education materials and awareness materials and then taking those to the most underserved communities. And it seems to me, Tanya, from, you know, just following this this line of the of the pandemic that it has just exposed the healthcare inequalities in this country uh, perhaps even more so what are you finding as it relates to covid-19 the pandemic now it's all about vaccinations what are you seeing in the communities that you interact with well, you're absolutely right. I mean, so many of these health inequities have existed for decades, uh, even longer. And yet COVID shined that spotlight on the health inequities um, more evidently. And one of the ways is even through vaccination rates. So if we go from one zip code to another in cities like Atlanta, Chicago, uh, Prince George County, Maryland, uh, literally one zip code away, you can have vaccination rates higher than 70% versus vaccination rates of lower than 20%. And and again, so much of that is driven by these factors that are driving health inequity, whether that be poverty, education, access to um, health care, food insecurity. There are a host of different reasons why health inequities are occurring. Well, here in New York City, as we've been talking about all day, uh, the city is going to require restaurant patrons to show proof of vaccination. Paul and I were talking about this as whether or not it will be some sort of impetus to get people vaccinated. I'm wondering when it comes to health inequities, what health officials need to do to make sure that there isn't this disparity because the vaccination is there. It's free. Uh, How do we get it to these people who uh, who haven't gotten it yet? Well, this is the shocking thing is that just because it's quote unquote free, doesn't mean that people are going to take advantage of it. And so we have to establish uh, connection through a trusted messenger in their community. So whether that be a doctor who looks like them, a nurse who looks like them, uh, perhaps even a pastor in a community center that they feel comfortable going to and trusting. Um, And so that's why we've developed our Not One More Life initiative to actually partner with those trusted messengers in each and every of the high-risk communities across 10 different cities. So the the cities that you're in, what role is the family doctor playing? Because it seems to me one of the most trusted folks uh, in in people's lives would be their family doctor if they have one. Um, and if that, they if have that, one. Yeah. So how do you deal with that issue? 
Right. So unfortunately, again, so many people do not have a primary care home. They don't have that medical home, that relationship with the physician. And so we actually help them to identify uh, physicians in their community that will accept new patients they could get connected to. But we also provide just a general health screening and a lung health screening free of charge in places like Home Depot parking lots or a church parking lot, um, just to get them to understand at baseline how they're doing with their blood pressure, their uh, blood glucose, their breathing in general, if they have any of those uh, high-risk comorbid conditions that would put them at risk for complication from COVID. Hey, Tanya, one thing that we've been talking about a lot on Bloomberg Business Week has been the way that this pandemic has disproportionately affected uh, people of different demographics in the United States. You mentioned comorbidities uh, and the way people who have those comorbidities are affected differently by COVID. I wonder if you're optimistic when we get to the other side of this pandemic. Finally, we will see some sort of large scale change when it comes to the health of Americans because there is that disparity there. So I think, again, we never before have we had a public health crisis that has lasted for this length of time. Every single night, the headline on the news is the leading story of the pandemic. And so I do think it presents an opportunity for us to really come together and think about how do we fundamentally change our healthcare delivery system in order to ensure that everyone gets equal access to care. So uh, now is the time, and I certainly think that there are many opportunities for improvement that we can recognize. Just real quickly, 30 seconds here, what's working? What are you guys finding that's working well? Well, it, you know, what's working well is what we call hand-to-hand combat almost, right. where we actually go into these high-risk communities and have these trusted messengers approach people in you know these high-traffic areas and have the conversations. Why aren't you being vaccinated? What is your greatest health concern? Do you have a primary care physician? Even engaging in that conversation in a casual way and beginning the dialogue around the importance of vaccination Mm, and primary care is is part of the program. Tanya Winders, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Allergy and Asthma Network, joining us live from Nashville, Tennessee. All right, Tim, so I have four kids in that 18 to 29 demographic, and all four kids have been vaccinated and quite frankly they didn't have a choice and they <laughs> wanted to anyway and so if they had a choice do you think they would have not gotten vaccinated no none, none of them would they all paid yeah. attention in science class so <laughs> but apparently the sweeney clan may be a little bit of an outlier for that demo uh let's get the story rebecca torrance works for with the u.s health care team for bloomberg news she is in lovely durham north carolina home of my duke blue devils uh rebecca thanks so much for joining us here what's going on with the young folks um Is it just simply saying, I'm young, I'm strong, I don't need it? Thanks, Pontem. Yeah, that's essentially what we're seeing. Um, There's only about 54% of the population uh, age 18 to 24 that have received one dose of the vaccine, at least. uh, And that's compared with 70% of the total population. And, you know, kind of what we're seeing is with older demographics, um, when you cut through the misinformation about the vaccines, the health risks posed by this virus are significant enough to convince most of them to get the shot. But since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen this messaging targeted at younger groups that they don't really face those same risks. Um, and that continues to impede progress on getting that group vaccinated. Essentially, they were told at the beginning of the pandemic that this is something that affects the elderly worse. And 
Paul and I were talking about this during the break, and he reminded me that young people were at the end of the line when the vaccine became available. So was it a messaging error from the beginning that's leading to this? Yeah, that is what some people are saying. Um, it seems like, you know, um, with the Delta variant especially, we're seeing those risks increase. But because we haven't gotten that messaging really until now, um, young adults just simply aren't picking up on it. Um, and we are seeing hospitalizations increase uh, in that age group as well. But because uh, that rate is so low compared to some older demographics, um, they seem to still think uh, that that risk is low enough um, that, you know, they simply don't need to take the chance, um, as some would say, to get the shot, um, despite the fact that obviously the risks of getting the vaccine are also incredibly low. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of the challenges, Rebecca, is going to be messaging and communication because the younger folks rely more on social media, perhaps, than some of the older demographics. And that's unfortunately where a lot of misinformation is. To what extent is that a factor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a lot of misinformation being spread uh, on TikTok and Instagram especially, um, and officials are targeting those platforms in particular as they try to spread um, messaging to this demographic to get them vaccinated. Um, But I think more and more what you're going to see um, is, and what we're seeing for other demographics as well, um, as uh, these pushes on social media Um, you know, it's difficult to prove how effective they are, um, is that we're seeing mandates more and more across the country. Um, There are well over 600 colleges that we know of um, that are requiring vaccinations in some form um, for their students. And um, I think that, you know, we're going to see these institutions start to clamp down on these issues uh, where messaging on these platforms just simply can't fill those gaps. Yeah, you know, I know, through my involvement uh, with Duke University, I know last spring they made the decision to the kids had to be vaccinated. Um, what are you hearing from universities and, and, and from students? Is there pushback on that? There certainly has been some pushback. Um, there is a group at Virginia Tech in particular that has gained a lot of uh, traction across the state um, in terms of uh, signatures on a petition to oppose the vaccine mandate. Um, but colleges are pushing forward and saying that they'll disenroll anyone from this fall semester um, that wow. doesn't get vaccinated. And wow. so we'll have to, um, you know, keep uh, an eye out for um, how students either comply with these regulations or, or attempt to evade them in some way. Um, but, you know, we'll see that effect um, in the next couple of weeks or so as uh, students start returning to campus. Hey, Rebecca, just in the last 30 seconds, how are we seeing with this most recent round of the virus? How are we, how are we seeing that manifest in, in younger people who are unvaccinated? Are there an increasing share of people who are uh, sick with uh, the Delta variant, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to get exact data on this for that population. Um, but we are hearing from doctors across the country um, that this population is getting uh, more sick and getting sicker faster than we have been seeing um, with other strains of the virus. And so, um, you know, despite the fact that the population may think that they have a low risk, it seems that that risk may be increasing. And so, you know, this is a real problem that a lot of uh, healthcare officials are trying to target right now. Well, we really appreciate you joining us and taking the time. Everybody check out her story available in the terminal at Bloomberg.com as well. That's Rebecca Torrance. She works with the U.S. healthcare team for Bloomberg News, joining us live from Durham, North Carolina. As I mentioned earlier, there is a new sheriff on Wall Street, and his name is Gary Genser. He's a chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he's taking a hard look and turning his aim towards the crypto space. And in a video posted on Twitter earlier, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, he does tell investors in cryptocurrencies to be careful what they invest in. Let's take a lesson. 
To those currently or considering investing in crypto, please remember, not only are they a highly speculative asset class, but there are also significant gaps in the investor protection afforded to you. That was SEC Chair Gary Gensler, and we have a Bloomberg story uh, on Mr. Gensler looking at crypto. Let's bring in Pat Regnier. He's Markets and Finance Editor for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Ben Bain, Financial Regulations Reporter for Bloomberg News. He's down at our 99.1 Studios in Washington. Pat, fascinating story here. What are you and Ben taking away from some initial remarks by Mr. Gensler about how he's going to take a look and and and, and potentially regulating crypto. I mean, it looks to us like he's laying down sort of a blueprint of what is actually going to be regulated. Uh, you know, uh, Ben and Rob Schmidt in reporting this, one of the things that was a big theme of their conversation is just exactly what does uh, the SEC regulate? What's in its purview? What's in others regulators purview? And what uh, sort of so far hasn't been established is regulated at all. And and um, Ben, I think you can speak to this. It looks like he's really trying to expand the reach of his uh, his agency. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the the big takeaway is that he thinks that there is a clear test out there already for whether something is a security, and it it works for a cryptocurrency the same way it works for whether something is a stock or an investment contract. But he thinks that this new technology, the blockchain, and everything that goes along with it does raise some new issues. And he pointed to some specific gaps. He mentioned specifically trading platforms. He asked, he says he's asked Congress to maybe grant some new authorities to the SEC or some other uh, federal agency that would allow them to really focus on these crypto exchanges because they're not like anything that's really ever uh, been around before um, in the sense that you have some of them, which are basically people lending crypto back and forth to each other and others, them which, which look a lot more like a classic exchange. So he's definitely got, as, as Pat said, he's kind of laid the blueprint for what's a pretty comprehensive uh, framework, I think. Ben, what exactly does Gensler think about cryptocurrencies? Because as you and Robert Schmidt write, this is a guy who actually had 29 hours of a blockchain and money course that he developed at, <laughs> at MIT. I mean, <laughs> what exactly does he think of crypto? I think what we took away from the conversation was that he's of two minds. One is that when it comes to the technology, he's fascinated by it. He's interested in it. He he says I, something to the effect of he leaned into it when he was teaching courses in it for three years, which, by the way, have gotten millions of views online, these courses he gave on the subject. That's one area. On the other hand, he really kept coming back to the idea that now, as chair of the SEC, he's focused on protecting investors. And he referred to this space as the Wild West. He doesn't think that there really is the sufficient level of protection that people need. And he said he's going to level everything that the SEC has to get it there. So um, he's already got at least seven different areas or initiatives kind of underway, looking at everything from some of these initial coin offerings to how to handle custody to a Bitcoin ETF potentially eventually, the SEC is kind of already churning and trying to kind of put something together that he thinks is going to fill the gaps that are existed. You know, one thing that was really striking to me in this story is that uh, a lot of people have been very, in the crypto industry, have been very excited uh, about him being at the SEC because he knows so much about it. And I think the presumption from some people has been, oh, you know, because we understand 
uh, their thinking is that because we understand that being unregulated is core to this. If someone else understands what we're doing, he's going to have light touch regulation. And I think, you know, bless your heart for thinking that if somebody <laughs> understands your industry very well, they're not going to want to regulate it. Yeah. And Ben, you know, one of the issues that you point out, and it, it's just a, a vexing one, is kind of you know, who does regulate what? It feels like it might be kind of a regular, regulatory kind of land grab here between the SEC, the CFTC, and whatever new groups Congress may create. Does Gensler feel like the SEC is the proper and primary regulatory body? He didn't go that far to say that the SEC should have say over it all. But what he did say is that when you look across the crypto universe right now, and taking Bitcoin out of that, there's all of these tokens that exist in the world. And a, a, a majority of those, in his eyes, are securities. And because they're securities, that means that they fall under the SEC's remit. And that means that if they're out there and not registering and not trading with the SEC's rules, then they're potentially in violation um, of those rules. And what's really going to we're going to see now is, is how he's going to deal with that. Because he's basically laid out the fact, much like his predecessor Jay Clayton did, that this space is existing in kind of this gray area for some, but for others, it, it's actually quite clear. Something, if you're raising money for a project and hoping to make more money off of it, that looks a lot like securities to, to a regulator like, like Gary Gensler. So we're going to see what he's going to do about it now. Hey, Ben, this is not the only thing that is his priority at the SEC, even though it gets a lot of attention, you do note that he's got close to 50 non-crypto policy reviews. What's a timeline for any sort of SEC action? And, and, and how would you characterize it as a priority, given that he's also focused on uh, day trading and GameStop and Archegos and, and more? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he, he didn't give us a, you know, a time frame per se, but while all of those things are certainly priorities, and when you think about all the things that the SAC does, I mean, there are there are areas that touch a lot more people than, than crypto does, no doubt. And those are going to be things that he's going to have to, to deal with first, um, for sure. But he also didn't teach, you know, three years of classes on any of those other things. So when we were talking to him, we came away with the impression, I mean, this is something he's not just thought about extensively, but he, but he cares about it. I mean, I think he... He really seems to have decided that this is something he wants to to get right, and he wants to put the energy into, even if it's not, um, you know, necessarily the biggest market at this point. He he clearly thinks it's important. Well, it's a fantastic piece. You can yep. read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. That's Ben Bain, financial regulations reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us live from the 99.1 Studios in Washington. Also with us, Pat Regnier, markets and finance editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's also today's Big Take. You can access it at the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. <laughs> This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Bloomberg Business Week brought to you by SEI. Crises and challenges highlight the power of partnership and character. Work for the common good. One community, SEI. Go to SEIC.com slash banks. 
So earlier today, State Attorney General Letitia James said that Governor Andrew Cuomo engaged in, quote, unwanted groping and kissing of current and former state employees as well as women outside of state government. Governor Cuomo, though, was defiant in his response to a state report. Uh, he cr uh, denied reports that he created a climate of fear in his office and violated federal and state laws. He did that in a press conference this afternoon. Joining us now is Marty Shanker, editor-at-large for Bloomberg News. He's live with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Marty, does does Governor Cuomo survive this politically? Well, that really does remain to be seen. You know, if you think back, uh, the Access Hollywood tapes we thought would doom the candidacy of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. And he became president. So <laughs> in this political environment, nothing is for sure. All right. So let's walk down the path of it. resignation. Judging from the press conference he gave today, it didn't sound like he's in any mood to resign. What's your take there? Oh, uh, well— it was what struck out stuck out to me was the sharply produced i mean interspersing photos of himself um right at the exact time he was speaking uh in that statement he was well prepared for this moment um and he is gives no signal that he's going to voluntarily step aside we knew that the state attorney general was looking into these claims was there anything in that report that was particularly surprising to us or to Cuomo? I would imagine not. Um, the only, there were a couple of new allegations, including one about a state trooper on his, a female state trooper on his uh, security force. Um, but broadly speaking, most of this was in the public domain. Um, uh, Andrew Cuomo did cooperate with the investigation and his comments are well reflected in it. And he, again, denies most of the th these things ever happen. All right. Albany politics are a world unto its own. What do you believe there's support for impeachment of Governor Cuomo? Well, I think they're, you know, they're well on the way of an impeachment investigation. This report will add to the evidence that they have, uh, have collected and will collect. The question is, do the Democratic leadership, and they are in firm control, have the will to try and remove uh, uh, Governor Cuomo in the context of him denying any of this happened. You're also getting Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and uh, Kristen Gillibrand all calling for his resignation, and it looks like Joe Biden's going to do that later today. Does that matter, though? Probably not. Not to Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he... Um, as you saw us uh, firmly said, look, I, this is not about me. This is about the people of the state of New York, and I want to continue to do the, the job for them. What's the uh, next, I guess, what's the next domino here? What's the next milepost that we should be looking for in terms of how this may go? Well, you would have to look at the legislature, the assembly, and see how they move forward on the impeachment investigation and trial. Uh, and if they start setting firm deadlines for witnesses and for um, uh, an actual procedure in the assembly, that would be the next step. And the gubernatorial election in 2022, any indication that if he doesn't resign, if he's not removed from office, he perhaps would be challenged by somebody who could actually unseat him? Yeah, I think that's quite possible. You know, in a poll in uh, early July showed fully two-thirds of, of New York voters don't want Andrew Cuomo to run again. 
Um, that said, his name recognition and a reservoir of goodwill would make him a formidable candidate for governor, in my, in my view. What's the sense of timing here? I mean, is this something that's going to drag on, or, or, or can, in fact, the Assembly move quickly? It's going to drag on. Okay. I mean, and, uh, you know, it's important to remember that these charges in the laws that were broken are civil laws, not criminal laws. So there will probably be people pursuing similar uh, civil suits against Cuomo, but he is, you know, not charged with any criminal conduct. He mentioned those civil suits in his press conference today. What should we be, be looking for in terms of who's suing him and, and what they could actually uncover? Well, I and mean, the result of that, Marty. Yeah, yeah, he talked about it, and he said that he welcomes his chance in open court to uh, get to the truth. Doesn't sound like he wants in any way to settle those claims. So this will drag on. I mean, the courts, even in non-COVID uh, times, work very slowly, and, and now it would be, you know, painfully slow. Is Mario Cuomo just kind of a... a product of his time, maybe, and just maybe in his mind, he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. And that seems to be one of the avenues that, that we're hearing that he just doesn't really think what he does, his form of affection, for lack of a better word, is in fact, you know, taken a different way by some of these women. Well, Andrew Cuomo is clearly a product of his family environment that included the former governor, yep. a very close-knit Italian family from Queens. You know, I do think the culture has changed from the environment he grew up in. And whether Andrew Cuomo is, has, has been able to keep up with that change in climate um, is, is a really good question. Yeah. But, you know, to Paul's point, those moments of his response, that, those images that were, were, were interspliced at the exact moments where he was describing his own behavior seem to show that in his mind, things that he did that he was referring to were part of his normal everyday behavior, things that he did. Yeah, and that w was his clear strategy, that the uh, investigators misinterpreted his actions, that they were extremely common, that he's a warm person, that he does it hundreds of times, and no one ever said anything except for when these allegations surfaced. So he was speaking to the public there and trying to uh, tap into the goodwill he generated with his COVID response and for his uh, almost eight years as governor. Uh, it remains to be seen whether that's going to work. It certainly does. Mm. Marty Shanker is editor-at-large at Bloomberg News. He's with us live in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Marty, thanks so much. I think the big question is uh, what comes next for him. Yeah. And obviously, it doesn't seem like he's in any hurry to uh, <laughs> resign. No. And you know, again, his tone uh, was defiant today and very clear. And uh, he certainly got that across. So something that happened to me in my own world in the last year, Paul, has been uh, that several friends have left New York City mm -hmm. and gone to the suburbs. Uh, one did it much sooner than the other. The other one, they both bought in White Plains, had the toughest time yep. finding a place. They were getting outbid every weekend by people going all cash, uh, all young families who wanted to leave New York City and get more spaces. More and more people are working from home. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. We, uh, you know, we uh, just sold our, our home in North Jersey and it uh, sold uh, very quickly and it just confirmed the really, really strong market out there for uh, residential. For sellers. Uh, yes, it's a great time to be a seller. Boy. <laughs> well, let's get right to it with Stephanie Malios, realtor and founding agent at Compass Real Estate in Short Hills, New Jersey. She joins us on the phone, not from New Jersey today, but from Maryland. Stephanie, was that a fair characterization of the way that you're seeing the market right now in the suburbs? 
It absolutely is. I am in New Jersey today, as a matter of fact, but that's exactly what we've been experiencing in this area. Uh, South Orange, Maplewood, Summit, Livingston, Chatham, all, all the counties, Essex, Morris, Union counties, have all seen a tremendous um, amount of activity from people kind of accelerating their timeline on maybe they were going to move in three to five years, and now they're moving right now. So, Stephanie, I want to get a sense of kind of some of the drivers here. My guess is it's some combination of, boy, historically low interest rates in the mortgage market, plus the pandemic and and, and the need for space and people rethinking working from home and all of that. So as you talk to your clients, what are you hearing as the primary driver? Well, for a lot of them, they've been working from home, but if they have kids, they've also been schooling from home. And that is really sort of untenable in a one or two bedroom apartment with two adult parents working from home and one or two kids schooling from home. It's just not possible. I mean, it's possible, but it's not fun. One of the challenges, though, that comes with such a hot market is the people who are selling need somewhere else to go. And I wonder when prices just get so high as they've continued to climb that people who do want to move somewhere else and already own, they are priced out of their own area because prices have gone up so much. That's absolutely happening here, but uh, there's been a huge growth of luxury apartment rentals built in the region. Um, anywhere where you could sort of stick hmm. uh, 100 or 200 units in a little funny area, um, people are building them, and here they are. They're ready. So a um, number of people in certain generations that would never have considered renting because it's just sort of against the law to rent and pay somebody else's <laughs> mortgage um, – that mindset has changed quite a bit, especially when the tax laws change and you could no longer write off more than $10,000 of your property tax. And in this area... Don't remind me, please. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, me too. So they're like, you know, let's just take our money off the table. We'll just rent for a year or two. I was just with somebody today who's scaling down from a $4 million house in Short Hills thinking they'll rent for a year and see what happens. And maybe they'll buy something smaller and renovate it, or maybe they'll relocate. They they don't know, but they like the fact that they can be liquid and, and act quick when they're ready. Stephanie, what do you think would or will derail this hot market? Um, well, interest rates going up doesn't help, but yeah. often that stimulates people to act because, oh. funny enough, as interest rates stay very low or when they're declining, everyone thinks they have all the time in the world to find something. And when they go back up, that's when they realize they missed the bottom and, uh-oh, they better scramble and get in. So sometimes having low interest rates doesn't spur activity. But in this time period with school about to start, anyone with children going into school this year, they want to make sure their kids are going to be in a seat. And that's not necessarily guaranteed in the suburbs, but I think a lot of people think there's a better likelihood that they'll be in a seat in a classroom with a live teacher in these kind of areas where schools have always been very highly prized and focused on. You mentioned a lot of areas that have been of interest to a lot of people for years. I'm wondering, are there areas now that people should be paying attention to if they get priced out of the summits and the, the short hillses? Well, a lot of those people are actually moving to Harding Township, which is also known as New Vernon, which is very low taxes and very big properties and uh, large homes because they realize that the 
need to be close to the commute is no longer as important to them. So they're more willing to go sort of a country route as opposed to the suburbs, whereas someone coming out of Brooklyn or mm. uh, Jersey City, they might not be quite prepared for a 15-minute drive to civilization, a like a supermarket. But for someone who's already lived here, they kind of get it. So if they really don't think they need that, they're willing to make that kind of a trade, and especially you're seeing a lot of people who normally would be thinking about scaling down at this point or downsizing, we call it right-sizing, but they're thinking, you know, let's go to a bigger place where if our kids right out of college have to move back in with us again, there's room for them. And let's have a pool, too, while we're at it, and a jacuzzi, and maybe even a tennis court. Oh, uh, yeah. My kids are out of the house, and they're staying out of the house, (laughs) and we downsize, and we top-tick the market is kind of what I keep telling myself. (laughs) Stephanie Malios, Realtor and Founding Agent, Compass Real Estate, Short Hills, New Jersey office. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, this drive to the close. Boy, looking at this market driving hard to this close. The S&P up 7 tenths of 1%, another big move. NASDAQ a little bit uh, uh, softer going up 4 tenths of 1%, but still a lot of green on the screen as the market continues to set new t- all-time highs nearly on a daily basis. But I like talking with our next guest because he looks at things a little bit different. He's not just kind of a what I call meat and potatoes kind of equity investors. He looks at distress situations, event-driven situations, some really interesting stuff. George Schultze, founder of Schultze Asset Management. He joins us on the phone from Rybrook, New York. George, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, a bunch of us knuckleheads, we just throw money on our 401k <laughs> and put it into, you know, Fidelity Contra Fund. And, and, we, and we look back 30 years later and we think we're, we're you know, kind of legends. You actually look at some really interesting stuff. What are you look at, looking at in a market that seemingly makes new highs every day? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, the, uh, our main focus here at Schultz Asset Management is we, we observe defaults and distress. And uh, defaults are really down a lot this year. The economy is doing pretty well. Uh, but a lot of it is due to really what we call extreme monetary and fiscal policies, including the Fed's buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities each month. So that's really provided a lot of cheap money. Um, and because of that, companies are meeting their obligations. In the first half of last year, we saw over $100 billion of defaults. In the first half of this year, it's only been $8.5 billion of defaults. And in July, there were no defaults at all. As a result, uh, distressed bonds only represent 2% of the high-yield index right now, and the default rate is very low. Wow. It's only at about 1.2% versus the long-term average. And what's that, two, what's that 2% 4%. historically? That, that number jumps out at me. Is it typically 5%, 10%? Yeah, the, the long-term default rate is about 3.6%, um, so it's really low right now. Last year, uh, distressed bonds represented 29% of the U.S. high-yield index. So, so uh, we're close to... The, to uh, you know, the historic lows here. Um, interestingly, energy is still the highest uh, defaulting industry of almost 6, 6% in total. Um, so it's, it's, you know, 
it's been pretty good times in the in the fixed income industry, um, and you're seeing it with low defaults right now. So what happens when the Fed stops? What happens when the era of low interest rates and accommodative monetary policy comes to an end? Well, there's really no way to predict. But last time the Fed tried to stop, we had this taper tantrum where there was a dramatic market sell-off, and that forced the Fed back into QE. Um, so we think right now the bigger inf- the bigger risk is really inflation because it'll be very difficult for the Fed to get out of uh, you know such accommodative policies. And, and you know the corollary to all this good news is inflation. Um, we seem to be going from one major crisis to the next, and each time there's a bigger and bigger money printing bailout. Um, so really, the only way to repay all this debt is through monetizing it with uh, with inflation by printing more. All right. So what do you guys at Schultze do that, again, looking in the distressed market, where do you go for opportunities? So in our, in our uh, approach at Schultze Asset Management, we look before, during, and after distress. Um, and in times like this, when distress is low, when default rates are very low, we focus on those companies that were previously distressed, that were distressed, that had distressed debt, but then restructured that debt where the former lenders and bondholders got new equity. Um, and, and many times those companies can be value investment equities, um, and sometimes they, inter- they have interesting events that drive them closer and closer to fair value. Give us some examples of those. Well, one large one that uh, you know recently went through distress and still has elements of distress is uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. Oh, you're yep. the second yeah. guest in, in just a few days to talk about PG&E. I'm a Californian, so <laughs> followed the company closely. Um, and look, it's been in a tough. I mean, we could do a whole show on PG&E, but yeah. with it's with regard to the fires and and the um, bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah, but but the the situation, you know, they're they're still making headlines, and you know, you're in wildfire season right now. But really, with the new laws that were passed in California, as well as the restructuring that occurred, uh, we think it's positioned much more favorably going forward. And ultimately, when they bury all their their lines, that'll ultimately be paid for by Californian citizens. So so the company will continue to become a much safer and safer utility going forward, although you'll still see these uh, occasional you know, news stories about, you know, terrible events and, and, and issues as they transition. And with that, usually we think there's a, a pretty good buying opportunity with the stock. How about, do you look at municipal bond market, I'm thinking areas like Puerto Rico, for example? Yeah, so that's a that's the largest municipal bankruptcy yep. ever. Uh, Puerto Rico is still winding its way through bankruptcy. We expect that they'll vote on their disclosure statement um, this November. And probably you know, most of Puerto Rico will start to emerge from bankruptcy in the first half of next year. There'll be some interesting opportunities there as that island continues to recover. Um, unfortunately, the democratic, the demographic uh, trends in Puerto Rico have been very difficult, but, but uh, I think with all the debt relief they'll be getting with their, with their reorganization, there'll be some new opportunities there as well. So the demographic trend, is that just is that people moving out or is that aging? It's both. Okay. More people moving out, though, on the island of Puerto Rico. It's, uh, you know, people have been looking for opportunity elsewhere because it's been under such distress for yep. such a long period of time. Hey, how are you feeling about the, the health of the economy? Uh, we get the jobs report on Friday, and there's sort of these competing signals that, that we're seeing, right? We're seeing equity markets continue to climb to record highs. We see that, though, in the fixed income market, we see concerns about growth. Uh, and, and I just wonder how you characterize it. 
So the economy is doing well. Um, we've really co- recovered a lot from the dog days of COVID. Now we're in the dog days of summer, I guess. But you know, going forward, I think most you know economists are expecting near double-digit growth into the third quarter. So things are looking pretty good. The question now is, you know, how does the Fed get out of supporting the whole market with 120 billion of asset purchases per month? And as they, re, you know, as they, you know, try to taper that or wind it down, could there be a market sell-off or an impact uh, overall uh, into the economy? So, so what you really need is a, a transition from all this governmental spend, not just monetary stimulus, uh, but also fiscal stimulus with the infrastructure spend that's coming through, and you need to try to convert that back into the private sector. Um, and that'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I think going forward. You know, beyond this year and into next, you know, the the comparisons will be more difficult, and and uh, you know, with luck, though, we'll continue to see some growth. Yeah, fingers crossed. Certainly, George Schulte, it is always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Founder of Schulte Asset Management, he joins us on the phone as he always does from Rye Brook, New York.